Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
there was a general sense of kind of lawlessness, which the crew were trying unsuccessfully to, to counteract. And everything about the last night of Gwenda's life is confused. And you get the sense from every person who talks about it that they're holding something back. Our friend Gideon Hay is back with another historical Australian true crime case. Gideon is one of the world's preeminent cricket journalists. He's written roughly 50 books, mostly about sport, but a significant number of them have been about his other passion, which is true crime. In particular, Gideon tends to be drawn to Australian stories about female victims who were shockingly let down at the time of their demise. I'm always very moved by how much care and effort he puts into seeking the truth for long-forgotten women in his books, and this one is no exception. It's called The Girl in Cabin 350. The girl in question is Gwenda McCallum. She's young, single, restless, and determined to squeeze every drop out of life when she arrives in Sydney in 1949. And she's certainly not the only one. Sydney had been transformed by World War II. Women had joined the workforce and stayed. Hundreds of thousands of American servicemen had passed through the city on leave. Nightclub culture had arrived, and so too the criminal element that tended to go with it. We begin this episode of Australian True Crime with Gideon taking us back to the booming party scene in the Harbour City in the 1940s. The scene young Gwen McCallum wandered into looking for fun and adventure before vanishing mere weeks later. It's funny, my, my friend Peter Lawler said to me the other day, he said, the real subject of this book is not just a single person's disappearance, it's what was happening behind closed doors in Australia, in this allegedly relaxed and comfortable nation that we used to live in. There were deep, deep incrustations of shame and social taboos and the effort of keeping up appearances. And we become aware of them when we start to look at people's family trees now, and we realise how ragged they were, how much misshapen fruit was dangling from their boughs. On the surface, this was a highly conformist society that you know, observed all the sort of the middle class proprieties. But in fact, people were on the loose. <laughs> back oh, yeah, then. absolutely. Yeah. You also you point out the many kinds of differences that made people vulnerable. And so in doing that, you sort of point out that everyone was kind of vulnerable in a way because what was considered normal was so narrow. Yes. And yeah. and everyone's perpetuating this idea that you have to be normal and yet it feels like no one was because it was such a narrow idea that everyone's pretending to be this thing. Particularly women, yeah, particularly young single women. Oh, my God, what about this quote? One of the most dangerous classes in the world is the drifting and friendless woman. She is a stray chicken in a world of foxes. Sherlock I, Holmes. My goodness. Good line. You, amazing line. I mean, I feel like I've read and seen and heard and experienced so many iterations of that line, and yet when I read that in your book, I'd never read Sherlock Holmes, but when I read that in your book, I thought, oh, gosh, that's painful in its truth. There is this very interesting period, I think, in Australian history, the decade from the end of the Second World War up to the advent of television, where 
our city's nightlives were actually much more vibrant than we now imagine. Because if you wanted to be entertained, you had to go out. There was the, the entertainment didn't come to you. Television caused a, a huge radical change to the domestic sphere. You know, after that, everyone gathered around the TV in the evening. But from 45 up to 56, this is a Melbourne, which is where um where my subject was uh, you know, coming to from the country offered all sorts of bright lights and enticements and bohemian salons to fit into where the lonely, friendless, drifting women uh, often came to harm. Mm. And as you said, restaurants closed at 8pm. And so then where to go? Nightclubs? Well, exactly. There were plenty of places to go. There was a vibrant, rather louche, kind of cafe society that um, that young people gravitated towards. It's actually, I mean, interestingly, it's the same milieu as I looked at in some respects to my book, Certain uh, Admissions in 2015. It's the same year. It's the same detective involved and the same kind of two young people out in an evening and one of them comes to harm and, and what are the consequences of that? And also a book I did a few years ago called A Scandal in Bohemia about a woman who was murdered, who was on the fringes of artistic society, uh, Molly Dean, came to harm while walking home alone. You know, the woman alone in uh, in those days was every bit as vulnerable as she is now. And when she became a victim, and in that case, Molly was murdered, in this case, Gwen, our subject, disappeared. And so everyone's telling their story for them, about them in retrospect, and everyone's talking about who they were. A lot of aspersions are cast about whether they were loose women or good women, what kind of women they were. And they're being judged by who they spent time with, where they spent time. And to spend time with artists is a euphemism, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> who are artists? In many cases, uh, they're gay people. You know, so that's another group of people who are maligned in these days to be homosexual is, is a crime, you know, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Let me introduce Gwenda McCallum. She's 19 years old. She's a nurse. She's come from the country. She's getting her first exposure to the bright lights of Melbourne. She's working at the Methodist Babies Home, which of course is a a home where young women often deposit unwanted babies, which are are then parceled out. You know, this is the, the consequences of the activities of allegedly of loose women. So she's, you know, she's got a front row seat in this. And when we say unwanted babies, I mean, even that, you know, what does that mean? Well, inconvenient babies, yeah. let's just say, inconvenient to, uh, to, to the mores. Mm. Now, she has a boyfriend who's a very charming young man, a very gifted young actor whose name was John Bellew, who seems to have shown remarkable promise very early in his career. He's extremely handsome. There are some photos of him in this book. They, they look like a sort of a magical couple. She's very pretty. He was at the, probably at the outset of a, uh, of a of a glittering career. And then mysteriously, halfway through 1949, his brother comes home to uh, and finds that John has stuck his head in the gas oven. And he's written a very confusing suicide note where he basically bids farewell to his mother and claims that he is suffering the early onset of polio. Therefore, it is kinder to his people to take his own life rather than become a burden in the future. Now, no one had any idea that he had this affliction. No one really believed the substance of the note, but they were 
completely incapable of understanding what he'd taken into his head. There is some suggestion that he's gay, isn't there, or that he's at least confused about his sexuality. Yes, or yeah. yeah. He's certainly in a um, in a group where to be camp, camp was the word they used in those days rather than homosexual or, or gay, was well understood and you know thoroughly codified. You know, we're talking about the Melbourne of Frank Thring, for instance, the flamboyant gay thespian. So you know, let's face it, he's only 19. Both of these people are only 19. Having come from relatively sheltered backgrounds, they're kind of getting their first, first exposure to, uh, to, to freedom, and that doubtless involves a degree of self-questioning. But they are the people at the edges of taboos, at social taboos in an otherwise conservative Australia. You and I have kids of the same age and and our kids are sort of in their early teens. And another thing that struck me about the people that you've researched, the people that you, and you describe them and their world so well, is how grown up they are. Yeah. I mean, they're only a couple of years older than our kids. I know. Right? And, I mean, <laughs> Gwenda is... She's a qualified nurse. She is working in this uh, this baby so-called baby hospital yes. where she's caring for you know tens of babies every day and the psychological sort of stress she certainly doesn't seem stressed by it but I I I wonder what that was like to be there every day with young women who were giving up their babies and and most of them we know now anecdotally did not want to give up their babies and they were not unwanted babies they were unwanted by their families and yes. by their culture yeah. yep but there must have been really heavy emotional scenes there every day in her workplace her family is pretty intense as well isn't it my god yes yeah <laughs> she's yeah. the youngest of of, of three the, right. um, the the mother suffered significant mental health issues that's what we'd call them now when Gwenda was born, the mother suffered uh, a postpartum infection and had to have her hand amputated. So it's this woman with this wooden hand. Apparently this wooden hand stayed in the um, in the family cupboards for years after she died, this weird sort of crazy memento, somewhat haunting. But just to get back to your um, your point about the, the circumstances confronting young women, of course, it was a false promise at the same time. There was tremendous freedom, but there was also the imminent sort of re-domestication because once you got married and had children, that was the end of your working life outside the home. So this was a brief kind of intermission in a young woman's life where she got the opportunity to sample freedom only to have it imminently taken away. I get the feeling that Gwenda was quite jealous of those freedoms. Um, you know, they, they were freedoms that she liked the taste of. She was trying them out, wasn't she? Yeah, she was trying them out. Unlike her sister, her older sister, who is, of course, probably in the classic formulation, the more responsible older system. She had stayed closer to home. She had a job, but she was she ends up getting married at the end of the same year in which her sister disappears, which is astounding to me and that you at the end of 1949 she gets married and there's a gap in the family photos where her sister should be which of course um has profound ongoing impacts on her pathology later in life as does i think world war ii i think that yes the context of so much loss and so much trauma i think there's there must be a 
fair bit of YOLO going on, you know? Yes, yes. A fair bit of just you just got to live your life because you never know what's around the corner. And certainly in this family, John, the boyfriend, with whom she certainly I think was in love if not. Yes, yeah. Yeah, she had very strong feelings for him. He takes his life so suddenly and then her mum died not long after that, didn't she? That's right, yeah. And it's kind of, it seems to be as a result of this that Gwenda's life begins to spiral out of control. She falls in with this deeper and deeper with this allegedly fast crowd. And so it seems like Gwen had a a burst of YOLO after that and went, if not off the rails, she certainly went, okay, I've got to get out there and live some life. She had a tortured relationship with her mother, who, who of course, blamed her for this incapacity that, um, that she'd experienced. And, of course, there was the rapture of the first relationship that uh, that every young woman experiences. And, and John was an extremely attractive and charismatic young man, extraordinarily talented, probably unlike anyone that, uh, that Gwenda had met before. And to suddenly lose those two people within a, within a matter of weeks, it was, independently was to was to have two very important kind of pit props kicked out from underneath her and from then from from that stage onwards she looks like one of those young women or those lost young women a chicken loose in a world of foxes as Sherlock Holmes put it yeah and still 19 so she does what so many of us do in that situation certainly when we're young and we don't have mm. any ties or responsibility yeah quits her job and hightails it up to sydney yeah, she does. The important thing to remember about Sydney in those days is, is quite different to Melbourne. Melbourne was much more of a cafe society. Sydney is much more of a drinking society. It's the kind of the zenith of the sly grog movement in Sydney. Um, it's where kind of Abe Saffron first puts down roots. There are a lot of really fabulously louche uh, nightclubs in operation in Sydney, operating at the very, very edge of the law with a kind of a tacit understanding with the police that they'll be looked after. So Gwenda loosed on this society in the company of some extremely unsuitable men was acutely vulnerable. There are two absolutely fascinating men in this story. One of them is Gregory Board, who was um, allegedly during the Second World War, he's the world's youngest test pilot. He was a pioneering um, aviator who after the Second World War set up uh, a charter airline flying people into Asia and uh, and into Europe using um, a second-hand cargo plane, but obviously operating in the contraband market, uh, obviously carrying illegal goods back into Australia. And, of course, there's the fantastic Pierre Mann, who is this sort of dandy. He's the head of the Free French in Australia. He's an Australian father and uh, and a French mother who fled France as it was being occupied by the by the Germans. In fact, they left their chauffeur-driven limousine on the pier in Marseille as they boarded the ship to, to head off to, uh, to the UK. They come to Australia and on the ship, Pierre is heard loudly referring to the appalling mismanagement of the war by the Allies and making it pretty clear that he's a fascist sympathizer. Wow. This, t- this turned up in a um, in a file at uh, at National Archives that he had been reported to the special branch in Australia for being a man who probably was a little bit suspicious. You know, you wouldn't want to, to let him near any military secrets. And also that he was incorrigible around women. That's the fascinating thing in this file. It says, you know, do not trust this man around women. 
And of course, he befriends poor Gwenda when uh, when she gets to Sydney, and he is probably principally responsible for the fact that she's on the ship. I love the fact, though. I can, you know, you can understand how Gwenda she is still pretty naive. She again, I'm going to go back to her age. She's 19. She's a country girl. She has spent some time in Melbourne, but she's taken off to Sydney. These guys do have wives. They do. You wouldn't know it, but they do. But I'm sure they use the fact that they were married men to make her feel comfortable. Yeah, I'm sure. Initially, you know, to sidle up to her. So she's hanging out at this pub, the Australian, which is full of ne'er-do-wells. But to, from her perspective, I'm sure they're sharply dressed, they're well-spoken, this guy's a French, how impressive. Yes, The yeah, other guy's a yeah. fighter pilot or whatever he is, you know. And they're saying, oh, gosh, I'm married. You know, you're safe with me. All of these things they're no doubt using to impress and charm this very naive young woman. So I can understand how this young woman ended up in the space of 48 hours, in some cases meeting some of these men and then being a castaway on a cruise liner. Getting on a ship, yeah, getting drunk, falling asleep and waking up and finding that the ship's at sea. So one of these men she's just met, Alistair Cameron, he's... Yes, the young English civil servant who's on his way back from Fiji. Of course. Yeah. That, sounds, that sounds reasonable. He's paid her fare, which is £20, and he's given her some pyjamas. Yes, yes, very <laughs> charming, very raffish. And the ship, they're so used to stowaways, by the way. They're so used to people waking up on the ship. They've got a spare room and they give it yeah, to her. Yeah, yeah. They give her her own cabin, berth number 350. Uh, there's com- lots of coming and goings during the night, people coming in and out of, of Gwenda's cabin. That's where it gets scary for me, to be honest. Like up until that point, I'm I'm on board, to use a pun. I'm like, well, this sounds like a fabulous party. It's party, party, party. Even during the in the morning, obviously everyone's still a bit drunk. They get on the ship. They start partying straight away from the morning. As soon as it takes off, she falls asleep, you say um, gallantly. Mm. I'd say passed out. She wakes up at, in the afternoon sometime. It's at sea, everyone goes, don't worry about it, bub. You're with yeah, us. Yeah. And they give her a room. They give her gym jams. They pay her fare. It's still party, party, party. But sometime during that night, that Saturday night, that's for me when I get the heebie-jeebies because then everyone's like, oh, I visited her room. I visited her room. She seemed fine to me. I took a bottle of champagne. I took a rose. All these men. The next morning, the cabin is opened. And it looks, the bed's undisturbed. There's a packet of cigarettes and uh, and an ashtray with some butts in it. Her underwear. Her underwear, her stockings and yeah. her dress. Uh, and a single rose yeah. in the vent whose provenance is, is unexplained. And, in fact, this becomes kind of part, the alluring part of the mystery. As the press get a hold of this detail... You know, what's the secret behind the rose? And in fact, she becomes, you know, the red rose girl when the story is published in the, in the British press. Yeah, there's a man who was seen in the hallway with a rose in his lapel too. Oh, yes. Somebody else saw her. The last, in fact, the last real sighting we have of her is in those pyjamas, I believe, that were gifted to her by Cameron in the hallway at about 2.30am asking another traveller where the bathroom was saying she wanted a bath. That makes me uncomfortable. That is kind of a bit odd, isn't it? After all the men say they had visited her. Somebody yes. else said many, many years later, you make the point it was many years later, that he heard or that he witnessed men trying to rape her. He, he said those words. 
a number of men had been in the cabin. Attempts had been made to kind of secure sexual advantage. None would admit having achieved their goal. But, uh, you know, if you're a young woman who is on your own with no defenders, completely disoriented and uh, and inexperienced in these ways, you can imagine how oppressive that would be, particularly if you were on your way home and you kind of had to account for where you had been and what you had been up to. And, of course, in those days, it was always the woman who was at fault. It was always the woman who had led the man on. Yeah, and particularly as you're these so-called friends that you're on the ship with that you've met days before, they're in their room with their partners. Yes, yeah. You know, and suddenly you realise how alone you are. Yes, and it's written, of course, in the, in the in the period vernacular. Everything is coded. Um, everything is restrained and uh, and and made respectable. But there is the general assumption that the woman has perished out of guilt at her own behaviour. To my mind, then I hear that story, and then I hear she's in the hallway looking for a bath at two thirty, and then she's disappeared after that. And then who was it who said that later that? They felt that she had perished of her own guilt, as in thrown herself overboard. Well, that's the police. The police told the Herald that um, she was inconsolable for the death of her boyfriend, the death of her mother, uh, which is undoubtedly true, but the other kind of contributory factors are tactfully ignored. Oh, gosh. And that's where it becomes just unbearable, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Coming up on Australian True Crime, our guest, Gideon Hay, takes us through the disappearance of Gwenda McCallum, and you can read more of the results of his research in his book, The Girl in Cabin 350. It's self-published and limited edition, so you can only buy it from Gideon himself, which is very special. And there's a link in the show notes of this episode to help you get your copy. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I have an unreasonable, irrational terror of cruise ships because of these stories. Yeah, I would never, ever set foot on one. I'm, I'm frightened of them. And you make the point in early in this book of the number of people who had gone overboard on this very or from this very ship before Gwenda ever set foot on it. It's surprising, isn't it, how often this Not happens. Not to me. <laughs> once, <laughs> once you begin starting to look, you think, actually, this is a much more frequent phenomenon than, than we give credit to. And frankly, a lot of the time... It's not easy to find out exactly what happened. It may be much harder now because I imagine there's kind of 24-hour CCTV surveillance of every section of a, of, of a ship. There is, and yet there's still mysteries. And also very similar to this story. I mean, I think of the story of Diane Brimble. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, there are the facts that are known, but still it boil, a lot of the story boils down to people talking about how much she was drinking at this party. Yes, yes. And yes. Uh, who she was with and did she want to be with those people and people saying, oh, well, I called by her room at this time and she she enjoyed it and we talked yeah. for this time and I took drinks and she was loving it. A lot of that happened with Gwenda. There's something, isn't there, about shipboard life yeah. where the normal rules are suspended. It's this kind of temporary world where everything is kind of turns on its head and the things that happen on land don't count anymore. The inhibitions and restrictions that we and the niceties that we might observe in everyday society are placed to one side. It's exacerbated in this case by the fact that um, the Orchides was travelling from Sydney back to Melbourne with a, a large contingent of passengers heading to the Melbourne Cup. Mm. So it became a kind of a part of the spring racing carnival, as it were. Card schools had set up. There were SP bookmakers in operation. There was a general sense of kind of lawlessness, which the uh, which the crew were trying unsuccessfully to, to counteract. And everything about the last night of Gwenda's life is confused. And you get the sense... From every person who talks about it, they're holding something back. She interestingly has this encounter with the journalist Michael Cannon. And this is how I got interested in the story, because late last year I launched uh, the autobiography of Michael Cannon, who was a very distinguished Australian journalist. And in 1949, he mentioned that he had encountered this young woman whose name he didn't give, actually, He or he, he put Gwenda in inverted commas, as though it was an alias. He had become friendly with her. They had they had fraternised socially. And he had attempted one night unsuccessfully to seduce her in his family home. And it all ended a little bit unhappily, a little bit untidily. And then, a few weeks later, he opens the paper and finds her photo on the front page and she's disappeared. I read this in the book, and it only takes about three or four paragraphs in the book. I thought, 
Boy, that's a really interesting story. And frankly, the only way that I'm going to find out more about that is if I write a book about it. Yeah. What I started by doing was um, I thought, that's intriguing. So I'll go on Trove and I'll see what I can find. A woman disappeared, Orchides, 1949. And some pieces do turn up, but nothing more. And there's sort of no... It's never resolved, and and the and you know it's it's one of those stories that kind of breaks cover for a moment, and then immediately disappears. And you you do think of the family having to live with the consequences of this for decades afterwards. And I thought, well, that's kind of fascinating because disappearance is something that we don't write very much about. We like to write about murder. We like to write about sexual indiscretion, but. When stories are naturally open ended, like a disappearance, how do people deal with that? It's like a, it's like it's both an unsolved crime and an imponderable conundrum that, where you kind of seize on the first explanation you come up with, but then after that, you probably receive conflicting data and conflicting thoughts, and in in terms of kind of dealing with with the consequences of that, you kind of have to put them to one side. Mm. But the, the the imagination can't help but uh, but but overwork itself. And as I found out in the decades afterwards, Joan, who was uh, who was Gwenda's sister, began to become convinced that that Gwenda was still alive, that she had saw her face in the crowd. She would run off in the direction of people who she thought looked like Gwenda. Uh, she became paranoid about her children's safety she became obsessed with controlling their lives so that they didn't come to uh, to, to harm similar to her and of course the perverse consequences of that was that this exacerbated her children's desire to break away to achieve their freedom so the, the family ended up getting the worst of, of of both worlds oh you can literally go mad i think when someone is lost missing and there is no closure to use that yes, silly yeah. word there is no closure for anyone in the story. The older sister gets married at the end of the year. Gwenda is, of course, conspicuous by her absence. And she remained when I when I became acquainted with the family, because I was able to trace down all of Gwenda's descendants and, uh, and, and relatives. She became the thing that no one ever spoke about. It's one of those classic stories of a family with a big secret, actually with quite a lot of secrets, it turns out. This is the biggest one. And it resonates with all the other secrets. Uh, it becomes kind of those things that, uh, that that are best tactfully not mentioned. And it's had huge consequences for, for the family. It's been a very troubled family. And frankly, you can trace a lot of their troubles to the fact that this issue was just never addressed and remained unacknowledged for so many decades. Well, because it's embarrassing, isn't it? From that moment, no one's pursuing it with the police because... It's humiliating. It's a shame upon the family, as they say at the time. They're not going to pursue the police about why they're not looking into it further, why they're not asking more questions about it. And the police have no interest because she's your classic girl gone wrong. Yep. Mm. And so then forevermore, when people ask about the family, ask about Gwenda, nobody wants to talk about it and that, that really festers. Yeah. So what happened in the family after that? Tell us about the, the troubles you're talking about. The family is very fragmented now. Most of the family don't actually talk to one another. It's almost as though they've disappeared from one another's lives. Disappearance is a is a habit in this grouping. And it's it's kind of tragic. And they all have a little bit of the story. 
but they've never actually got together and compared notes about it or kind of talked about how one another dealt with it or what are the potential consequences. So I actually felt quite privileged that I was able to be that person. And I'm I'm glad to say that it has actually had some positive consequences. Some some, some links in the family have been re-established after after long periods. But it concentrated, of course, around Joan, the uh, the, the older sister who got married could never really adapt to the idea of bearing children that she might be responsible for that uh, that that you know might come to harm she was both acutely protective of them and monstrously abusive of them at the same time they were very very heavily penalized whenever they strayed from a very very straight and narrow path freedom was such a terrifying prospect for Joan that she wouldn't allow her children to make mistakes. For instance, when the family went to St Kilda at the weekend, she would insist that that the children lock the doors of the car because someone might rush out and and pluck them from the car if they were vulnerable. One of the terrible things is that Gwenda's nephew ended up being one of those children who was sexually molested by that teacher, Gary Mitchell, in um, who's activities as a paedophile has, have recently been exposed. Mm. And that when he began to cut up rough at the school, the mother just found this idea so unthinkable that she would go to school and beautifully dress. She always immaculately turned out, Joan, but she would sort of codedly flirt with the teacher because, you know, he was a he was a man, he was charming, and she was very charming. You know, she ignored the evidence of terrible abuse and harm being done in front of her own eyes, despite the fact that she was completely paranoid about the fates that might befall her children. Joan had had a terrible upbringing too. I mean, the mother was was a was a calamity. Um, she made at least one suicide attempt, her own mother, and, and in due course, so did Joan. The father slept with David to protect him from Joan coming in in the middle of the night because apparently she used to wander through the night in a sort of a state of delirium um, and potentially with potential violence. And that's exactly what the father had done with Joan, had slept with Joan in order to keep the mother away from the daughters. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, she's a heavily traumatised woman. Joan's husband, Wally, who her kids adore, stuck valiantly beside her uh, did not abandon the family, did his best to to cope, but clearly was completely out of his depth under these circumstances. And what did a middle-class Australian male do when uh, when their wife behaved that way? They just did the best that they could. They continued to act as a breadwinner. They continued to intervene as necessary. But really, it was a, almost a little bit beyond Wally's imagination. It was certainly not something that was clear in the public mind about what you did under those circumstances. And again, it was embarrassing. You certainly didn't tell anyone Exactly, yeah. What are your thoughts looking back now and with all the research that you've done about Gwenda's life and her demise, do you think that she hurled herself over the the edge of the ship? Do you think that there was foul play involved? I mean, do you have any... I do have a theory which which I do discuss and it is related to, uh, to the harm that a young woman could come to in that time. There is an interesting counterpart to... Gwenda's story, Gwenda McCallum's story, in her cousin Gwenda Thomas. So there was this other branch of the family that the Henthorns knew nothing about. George, Gwenda's father, had a sister, Queenie, who they knew nothing about. And they had a cousin, Gwenda, who uh, who they knew nothing about. 
So I found Queenie's probate file in public records, and it had a son listed in there, Shane Forrester Thomas. I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting name. He must be somewhere. He does turn up on the electoral rolls, but it's well and truly out of date, and it's an outer suburban address. Now, I wrote some letters to that address, and I, I didn't get any reply. So what do you do under those circumstances? Well, you just go there, don't you? So I got there, and it took me like hours and hours to get there because I don't drive, public transport all the way. <laughs> uh, knock on the door, no answer. All right, I'll write a note, and I'll leave it under the door. Anyway, it turns out that it's a share house, four young men living there together, and Shane, who lives overseas now, has lived overseas for 15 years, contacted me like about, I don't know, a couple of days later. And uh, I said, well, you know, um, what can you tell me about your, your mother? And he goes, oh, well, you can talk to her. I went, <laughs> what? He said, yeah, she's still alive. She's in an old folks home in Fitzroy. I went, right, okay, tell me more. I won't spoil that by, by telling you what this what this counterpart of Gwenda's got up to, but that's a fascinating story in itself. It is, and, and it's And there great. she was. Yeah. She was living not far away from me. Is this one out yet? It's sitting in my kitchen. Right now, Michelle, in a tower of boxes. <laughs> it's only available from me. Oh, okay. So I'm sort of self-publishing now because this is a niche book. This is the kind of book where you think, well, look, it's not mainstream. It's a fascinating sort of self-contained story. It's a bit self-indulgent for me to have explored it at this length. And I actually want to do a really nice job on it. It's 200 pages. It's on beautiful, high-quality art paper. It's a lovely uh, physical item. And if you do it yourself, then you end up, uh, you, you get exactly what you want. How lovely. Well, I can vouch for the beauty of the objects that you produce when you self-publish. Gorgeous. We'll have all the details of how people can get hold of this book. I absolutely smashed it. I have not got quite to the end yet, but I've read it all in like a day so far. I've just <laughs> loved it. I've loved it. I've loved immersing myself in the the families. And as I say, the the time and the place and the just the minutiae, the details of the way people lived. I've loved it. I've loved it. Yeah, like all like all kind of narratives like this, it's a fantastic aperture through which to view the mores of the time. Yeah. And, of course, one of the great things about Melbourne is that often the streetscapes haven't changed all that much. Absolutely. You can kind of go to these places. It still feels the same. You can project yourself into these people's worlds. It's actually quite... It's long ago. You can actually empathise with uh, with their predicaments. And a young woman is still at risk to this day. Absolutely. We, we know it. We know it in our bones. Uh, things have changed, but uh, but horrifying things can happen. Horrifying things that are difficult to explain. And it's people still disappear. People disappear all the time. Although there are a lot more ways to trace them these days, there are a lot more people behind to, to hide behind. Gwenda, she reminded me of myself at that age in certain moments, but, yeah, it still happens. You can still, that moment of realising, oh, I'm alone. I, I'm, it feels like a minute ago I was surrounded by people I trusted and we were having fun, we were at a party, I was in the centre of it, but now they've drifted off and suddenly I don't know these people. I don't quite know what's going on. I don't feel as in control as I did and now I'm feeling a little bit wobbly. I'm drunker than I realised, all of those things. And that's the sense, and you wrote it really well, of the creeping up on her. Yeah, I felt terribly sad for her. Oh, of course, awful. Uh, to be absolutely honest. And I 
that was one of the things that kind of I thought I really need to tell this story just to acknowledge that these things happened. Even if I can't be definitive about how they happened, I might be able to hazard a guess as to why they happened. Why was she in that position of being so vulnerable? Why was she the wrong woman in the wrong place at the wrong time? It's interesting because as a woman, I really got how it happened yeah. from the way you wrote it. I got it 100%. Thank you to our guest today, Gideon Hay. Don't forget there's a link in the show notes to this episode to help you buy your copy of his beautiful book, The Girl in Cabin 350. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.